Hi, and welcome to Off the Clock, Tompkins Wake's podcast, taking you through topical legal and business issues. Today, we're doing a special on the new Fair Pay Agreements Act, the biggest employment law change in decades, and it's going to affect nearly all New Zealand employers, and it comes into force this week on the 1st of December. I'm joined by Daniel Erickson, employment partner at Tompkins Wake. Today, Daniel and I are going to talk about what fair payment agreements are and who they apply to. And then in the second part of this two-part podcast special, we're going to talk about how the bargaining process will work for employers. Daniel, this is the biggest change for employers since the Employment Relations Act replaced the Employment Contracts Act over 20 years ago. What's the purpose behind this? I think at its core, the main purpose is to increase wages and provide better employment conditions for employees. It's really about increasing the bargaining power of employees so that they can bargain across a sector or across an occupation rather than individually or even in a traditional collective setting where it's workplace-based. Okay. So essentially, the government's giving employees more bargaining power so that they can negotiate better work conditions, including wages. But how's a fair pay agreement going to do that? Fundamentally, it's strength in numbers. The Employment Relations Act has always recognised there is an imbalance in power between employers and employees. And one way to address that is to bargain collectively and to have groups of employees bargaining with their employer through a union rather than individually or in smaller groups. So I think the idea is that it will give the employees more power at that bargaining table because it will apply across that whole industry and across the whole sector. It's not going to be optional for employers, is it? No. Once a a fair pay agreement is in place, it will automatically apply to all workplaces and all employees that fall within the specific coverage clause of that agreement. All right. So we're talking about strength in numbers for employees. What will a fair pay agreement actually cover? So as a minimum, it will have to include a start and expiry date, and the term can be at least three years and no longer than five years. It must be a coverage clause, which specifies the type of work or the sorts of jobs that are covered by the FPA, and it must be relatively detailed, so it has to have sufficient clarity that you can ascertain who's in and who's out effectively. Uh, It should cover the normal hours of work, and wage details. The wage details will be a minimum base wage rate. And it's important to bear in mind it's a minimum. There's no requirement to pay that set rate. Employers and employees can agree individually to pay more. So they can't go lower, but they can go higher. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it should also include whether or not that wage rate is exclusive or inclusive of superannuation contributions. So KiwiSaver, for example. There should be details around an overtime rate and when it applies, and penal rates. So are there penal rates for working on public holidays, weekends, after certain hours, etc.? There must also be details in that agreement for training and development, and also leave and holiday entitlements. And whether it's the bare minimum in the Holidays Act or greater than that, that must be specified in the FPA. So if fair pay agreements are going to last between three and five years, Is it likely that there's going to be automatic pay rises built into these fair pay agreements or how's that going to work, do you think? 
The Act doesn't specifically say they're compulsory, but the parties can agree. And I think we do see that already with collective agreements. If a collective agreement is for a term of, say, two to three years, then in most cases there will be an agreement as to a wage increase throughout the term of that agreement, so on each anniversary date. So I would imagine that there would be some allowance in the FPAs Mm. for that. Probably cost of living at the minimum. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of other things that must be in there, and it's just the governance arrangements that relate to the bargaining parties and how they will be administered throughout the life of the agreement and also a process for varying the FPA. So if either party wants to make a change during the life of the agreement, what will be the process for that? Is there anything else that the two sides have to talk about? Well, there's a few things that they must talk about, and the Act says they, the first is must discuss items, I guess you could call them. Now, they don't necessarily have to ultimately be reflected in the end agreement, and they are what are the objectives of that agreement, health and safety requirements, whether there's uh, scope for flexible working arrangements, so working from home, working remotely, and arrangements relating to redundancy. So will redundancy compensation be payable to employees covered by the FPA? So those are matters that the parties must discuss. Whether or not they ultimately turn up in the agreement is ultimately up to the parties. Okay. So fair pay agreements are going to end up being pretty comprehensive by the sounds of it. And we've already said it's going to apply to all employers across a sector, but what does that mean exactly? There's two options effectively. There is an occupation-based FPA or an industry-based FPA. So An occupation-based FPA will be all employees who perform a certain type of work. So, for example, there could be an FPA that covers all commercial cleaners, and then that would automatically apply to anyone who's employed in one of those roles, regardless of where they work. You can have a slightly more narrow FPA, which is called an industry-based FPA. An example of that might be butchers or bakers that work within supermarkets, so it's, it's limited to a particular sector or industry. And again, that would automatically apply to anyone who falls within that coverage. So a baker or a butcher working within a supermarket would automatically fall within the coverage of the FPA. Okay, so an industry-based FPA sounds like it's narrower than an occupation-based FPA. Yes, it would be, yeah. Okay. So it sounds like the Act's going to affect a lot of employers. If an employer has just one employee in an occupation that's covered by the FPA, will the FPA still apply even if none of the rest of your employees are covered? Yeah, well, it will automatically apply to any employee who's engaged in that role if it's an occupation-based or in that industry if it's an industry-based one, yeah. And that's also regardless of where in New Zealand you're based. So someone in Invercargill and someone in Auckland could be required to employ people on the same conditions. Is that right? Yeah, the FPA would certainly apply, but there's nothing against having regional variations within an FPA. So you could agree within the document itself that employees in Auckland, for example, are paid a set rate and employees outside of Auckland are paid a different rate. There's no restriction on having that kind of variation built into the document itself. Mm. And we might very well find the smaller regional employers advocating for that because uh, they may find it difficult to match Auckland wages. Yeah, absolutely. So how does the FPA process get started? Can an employee initiate it? Employees can't initiate it. Unions can initiate it on behalf of their members. And and the way the legislation's drafted, it is only unions that can initiate the bargaining process. Okay. And can they just 
go and do it or do they need a permission before they start? How does that work? Well, there's two thresholds. One of them is essentially a numbers-based one. So it's either 10% of employees within the proposed coverage of the FPA or 1,000 employees within the coverage of the FPA, whichever of those is lower. So if the union can establish that they have the support of a sufficient number of employees within the coverage to support the initiation of bargaining, then they can initiate bargaining by making an application through MB. The other test is called the public interest test, and that's probably a bit more subjective. Whether there are industries within that sector, sorry, employees within that sector are typically low paid, and there's some other factors at play, and there's a number of other options that it can be. It can be that they have little bargaining power, or there's a lack of pay progression in their industry. And what that typically means is that they only get a pay increase when the minimum wage increases. So if there isn't a a mechanism outside that of, of increasing your pay, then that will be a factor taken into account. Or there's a perception they aren't adequately paid. And that can mean they don't get enough to recognise the fact they work long or on social hours, or they don't get paid enough to reflect this contractual uncertainty. So it's short-term work, irregular, seasonal, casual, that sort of thing. Okay, so the two options, the numbers option or essentially the vulnerable workers option. Do you think those tests are going to be hard to meet? Which is likely to be the more frequently used one? I think certainly the, the numbers one is relatively black and white. Either you've got sufficient support from the employees that fall within the proposed coverage or you haven't. The public interest test is probably a bit more subjective and you have to make an application through MB for that. And it it can invite public submissions, for example, on whether or not the public interest test is met. And ultimately, that person will make a decision. The access is the chief executive of MB who's empowered to make that decision. That's a bit more subjective. So I think at least initially we'll probably see applications based on the numbers test because, as I say, that's more black and white. Mm. And when you think about, you know, the number of cleaners, for instance, in New Zealand or, um, you know, fast food workers, a thousand isn't necessarily very many to get to sign up, you know, when you consider how many there are in total. So that test might not be too hard to meet. Or the 10% figure again, which should be, you know, many of these cases – Commercial cleaners is a good example. You would imagine it wouldn't be difficult to find, you know, at least 10% or 1,000 of those people to sign up to a supporting an FPA. Yeah, well, unions are already asking members to sign up for an FPA. Are we likely to see bargaining for FPAs start soon after 1 December? Yeah, I would imagine that soon after the date, there will be applications starting to be lodged. The kinds of things that industries, I think, will see first are uh, the commercial cleaners that we've already mentioned, bus drivers, and I would imagine supermarket workers as well, because they are—they have the numbers. They will be able to meet that numbers test relatively easily, I would have thought. And they are also industries where there has been a lot of criticism from some that they are underpaid. So that's where I think we'll start seeing movement around that. Mm. And industries where there are already unions in place. So Correct. it's just a yeah. question of the unions asking their members to sign up rather than needing to recruit before they can do it. That's right. Yeah, I've also seen uh, early childhood uh, workers and rest home workers mentioned as um, 
ones who are going to be fairly quick off the mark. That's right. And, and again, those are workers where you would imagine having the numbers won't be a problem and they are also industries that have been referred to as being relatively low paid. Mm. So these are kind of, I guess, the low-hanging fruit, the ones that are going to be the first off the mark. But do you think it's likely to spread to other occupations or industries? Yeah, I think in time, maybe other industries, unions and other industries that may take a bit of a wait-and-see approach and see how the first few bargaining sessions go. And yeah, there's uncertainty, I guess, about the election result next year too. And Mm. the National Party has already indicated that they will repeal it. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, whether that eventuates. Because potentially this could cover nearly every employer in New Zealand if all of the occupations decide to get in on it. Yeah, in theory it does. I mean, I I think that it's intended to target lower paid workers. Mm. And so moving beyond industries or roles where there's that perception that they are underpaid, whether or not that happens remains to be seen. But, you know, as you say, it's those industries where there is that perception that we are likely to see the movement. Mm. And that potential for sort of wide coverage is one of the reasons that all employers really should at least know about what fair pay agreements are and how they work. So now that we've covered what fair pay agreements are, in the second part of our podcast, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how the bargaining process works from the employer's perspective. So look out for part two of our FPA special in a couple of days. In the meantime, you can check out Tompkins Wake's article on the fair pay agreements on our website. For now, we're off the clock. 